Yeah, there's another thing then I thought, so um, having kind of talked to both of you before about various other kind of things, there's a couple other ideas that might seem related to this, and I, I just wanted to know a little bit more about them. Um, and the first was hauntology, um, because this sounds very cool, but I know nothing about it. Do you want to kick off, Ryan? Because I know this is something you've talked about before. Yeah, hauntology is uh, another one of those neologisms that uh, Derrida created. But I think it should be emphasized that like Derrida coins the term, but you can find hauntology in a lot of like black and indigenous work prior to Derrida. So like themes of haunting and stuff uh, are really big in other kind of areas of theory. And a lot of times when we talk about hauntology, we just start with Derrida and it's because he kind of coined the term. Uh, He's playing on the word ontology and haunting. Uh, And he's, um, he's specifically kind of responding to, Francis Fukuyama's End of History. Uh, he's writing in the early 90s. And, and so he kind of takes up Marx again and says, you know, like there's a specter haunting Europe uh, and it's communism, but not that it's like a threat that anybody's actually going to become communist anymore. It's this, um, it's a nostalgia for the the failed promise of communism right, or socialism. Mm. Like it, it never came about. And now we're kind of here at the end of history and we're like, oh no, the time seems out of joint. Like all these grand, um, and, and, and maybe in some ways it's the, the disenchantment of that generation of French activists who, who came of age in the, in the late sixties there with the, mm. the Paris. The power uh, to the imagination. The yeah. Paris but 1968. That's right. Uh, so he 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 reads um hamlet uh in particular that part in hamlet where um hamlet is confronted by the ghost and then he kind of like he's like oh cursed spite that ere the uh the time is out of joint that ere i was born to set the world aright um and and this this idea that that time is out of joint and then we have this so like there's a kind of a, a longing for the for the time to be other than it is um, mm. and a kind of a felt kind of angst that we are here in this out of, out of joint time. And we're like haunted by the possibility of another future that was promised. So the example I always use uh, today is Dua Lipa's future nostalgia because she just, she just Such lays it a out great there. example to use. Yeah. Yeah, and so she so and also it's important to note that like hauntology gets picked up first by by digital like e- electronic music um, mm-hmm. in a big way. Ghostbox Records, uh, Simon Reynolds has written about this. Um, Mark Fisher, but Mark Fisher is another big. It's like really big in the UK. Um, but so Dua Lipa kind of she's doing this with her kind of like bringing back disco and bringing back these things. She's kind of like uh, offering a she's offering us like this nostalgia for the, the kind of the hope and the optimism of that period of disco and the, the kind of the idea, like in a night out, anything's possible. And then like the, the most perfect, almost like I would say like almost divinely ordained thing about that album is like that it drops (laughs) right as we all go into lockdown. 
Um, and so like we even feel that nostalgia even more because there is no, there is not going to be a night out in 2020. And yet we're like, sit at home, just listening to this album being like, oh yeah, like just let me get back on the dance floor. Right. So that kind of, that very specific feeling of a time out of joint. And I think one of the places that uh, I've yet to find anybody writing on this, but I think where you could find a, like a biblical example is um, the medium of Endor where like Saul goes and everything's going to hell with his reign. And so he wants to go back to when Samuel was alive and like mm. kind of on his side, right? Like he wants to, so he goes and he actually raises the ghost of Samuel to try and be like reassured that he can. And like Samuel's just like, why'd you do this? Like, so, so okay. So the two things, one is you kind of ruined, I was going to making, I was going to try and make a joke about, I just can't grasp the idea of being in a space that feels out of time and, you know, what the promises of today and not what they were. So that was ruined when you mentioned the pandemic, because obviously that is now like <laughs> yeah. that. That is. Yeah. <laughs> so, but then the, the other kind of element then is that, so I got two senses from your description of that one is, and I, I kind of wondered whether this was related to something like, um, you know, it's aesthetic, particularly in the United States, of like the 1950s as this like dream age. And it clearly, I mean, it wasn't. So there's like an element of nostalgia for something that was presented, but never actually was. So there's like this kind of what could have been, but even when we had it, it wasn't quite that. Um, but then also, is there an element of the hauntology when you talked about um, Saul and the medium of Endor? Is you know, his raising of the the ghost of Samuel does not go his way at all. So is there like this confrontation in hauntology with, oh no, this, this you know, I've, I've wanted this and this was a bad idea. Is that a theme as well? Uh, well, I, it, yeah, it depends. Like, so like, like I said, the first big kind of application of, of this was just playing with nostalgia and sound in like, uh, electronic music and so you get a lot of like sampling of old BBC sounds from the 1970s so that's like a whole thing but I think like where I got keyed into it was from the work of uh, a, an indigenous scholar named Eve Tuck um, who uses it to talk about settler colonialism and how at the center mm. of the settler psyche um, is the the haunting presence of the indigenous person because the the kind of the great conceit of settler colonialism is that um, well, it's like a bunch of different ideas, right? So one is that the land was empty, terra nullius, mm. or that when we got here, they were all dying anyways. And so, you know, any civilization efforts were merely to, um, were merely to save them um, because otherwise they were going to go extinct on their own. So that's uh, Patrick Brantlinger has talked about like these dark vanishings that like, oh, they were just dying. And so mm. we needed to step in and do something or at least or at least as good anthropologists, at least like record their, <laughs> their demise. Right. Um, but of course, indigenous people actually didn't go ex like they didn't disappear as much as like all the machinations of settler colonialism tried to displace them, commit genocide against them, mm. bury them, destroy the records that we did it and practice forgetting them. Um, here they still are claiming sovereignty, um, kind of like putting a burr in the, in the very like idea of being like a settler Canadian, for example. So this summer mm -hmm. we had this great kind of blow up in Canada where uh, 
graves from the residential school started to be being recovered. Uh, and we, we knew that at least some of these were there, um, but we had kind of incomplete records. But the larger Canadian public was kind of caught off guard that I think I saw today that there's over 7,000 recovered graves now. And so like in this very real way, like Canada is built on the graves of children. Um, and we practiced forgetting that in all kinds of ways. And yet they pop up again. Right. And so there is that kind of way in which like um, we want indigenous people in the settler colonial mind, we want them to just be ghosts. Uh, but that kind of, creates a certain kind of guilt and anxiety. And then it turns out they, they don't even have the decency of being ghosts. They insist on being alive and asserting sovereignty, which is very inconvenient if you want to think that Canada is kind of like this great country all the way down, right? And so that's mm-hmm. kind of where some of the force of, um, of like ontology and these, these playing of ghosts and, and the, the notion of time being out of, out of sync um, gets... Um, gets applied in a really kind of creative way by, by decolonial theorists. I'm going to throw something really wild into the mix here as well, because I've heard similar things uh, like, you know, vanished people said about the Maya. The Maya are still around. Like this is a whole, right. like they, they didn't go away. They're still Maya communities um, all over kind of central North America. Um, but this then also, I wonder how much of this plays into that dreaded um, pseudoscience of ancient aliens as well, because this is kind of like the relics of the past. But really, it's like you decontextualize a lot of it, you rip it out of its historical context, and you take it away from the achievements of uh, indigenous peoples. Um is that also in the mix here or am I just kind of going, Oh, let's talk about the ancient aliens crowd. Yeah. I think, I think that's, I think you're, you're onto something with that. Like, so like, uh, like Thomas Jefferson. So this extinction discourse stuff, like Patrick Brantlinger has written a series of three books on it. And uh, I just recommend like reading those, but um, Thomas Jefferson, because of this kind of milieu of, uh, America being kind of like degenerate, I guess, because like, oh, mm. look, all these indigenous yes, people just I've dying. About this. Yeah. Right? So America got this like reputation of being like a degenerate place. And there were no like there were no big kind of like land mammals there, like in Africa, mm. right, where you have like uh, elephants and giraffes mm-hmm. and th- these different kind of things. We don't really have anything like that in, in North America. Like our big things are like some bears and moose. I bison. Guess. Yeah, bison, but like nothing. So Jefferson goes on a kind of a, a quasi like archaeological quest to find evidence that like America was this great big uh, impressive place where people were going to go grow big and strong. And so he look, goes looking for monsters and he goes looking for like like uh, different kind of like bones and things that he can dig mm. up. And, and so that kind of really fuels the, the kind of first level paleontology to find like dinosaur bones and things and be like, look, no, 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 like it's not it's not actually the case that this place is just doomed to degeneracy. It's not just the kind of the hellhole of Satan that we said it was in order to kill all these indigenous people. Uh, in mm. fact, it's actually pre- cre- created these great big huge things. And so now America is going to be like born and kind of carry forward the spirit of this great big huge, you know, mastodons or whatever the heck we're mm. finding, digging up. And so uh, that gets like pushed back against the Europeans who are kind of looking down their noses at, at the Americans. And so that, yeah, there is like that whole, 
like it's it's stranger than fiction, but it it mm. really did happen, and it's just very weird. As a side note, I think we listen to the same podcast. Yeah, probably. Sh- shout out to Monster Talk. Yeah. Yep, <laughs> oh wow! I feel like I'm missing out here. And on yeah, it was a wild, wild uh, episode that one. Um, thanks. Yeah. Wow. Um, sorry, Cat. Do you have any thoughts on hauntology? Is this something that reminds you of anything, or you've looked into it? I mean, at the minute, I'm down a bit of a Derrida wormhole, rabbit hole with. Um, an idea actually while you guys are talking I just can't help but think how many how reminiscent a lot of these stories are of the way the idea of the promised land is 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 used um yeah this idea of the the myth of the empty land and um this land where the people will go grow and be fertile and be taken care of and yeah I suppose the kind of quintessential utopian image and, and colonialist image is, is the promised land at least in the western christian west um and that's really struck me throughout that and yeah i had my own thoughts in derrida and well i don't have thoughts in derrida i should clarify i'm, I'm not a, a derrida scholar i'm definitely a biblical scholar but i'm really interested or begin to be interested in the way he uses the idea of the promised land and how we might read the promised land through hauntology but i have no no thoughts on that at the minute. You've caught me trying to write an abstract on it, so I, I won't. I won't say anything <laughs> now. Yeah. I don't, don't spoil it. Um, I, I think though, cat like um, this. It would be helpful, maybe, to remind our listeners that like uh, Jameson points us to the fact that like a lot of these ideologies, like one of the the places mm-hmm. for raw data for all this stuff, is the Bible, actually. Uh, absolutely yeah and so when we see these things in the bible it's not like it's not like oh like oh yeah like isn't that kind of neat that like this resonates with utopia or this resonates with ontology or whatever like in a very real way it's people reading the bible and kind of like uh using that to shape the way that they're kind of like articulating these things so there's a kind of like a, i guess like a cyclical feedback hermeneutic loop there yeah yeah it's something that i i've definitely spoken to you both about is is this thing in my work of, of reading the bible as utopia but actually how much of, of utopia is inspired by the bible so how so so what's the relationship on there and i haven't quite figured out how to articulate that yet um but it's really really fascinating and, and yeah the jameson bit you're referring to is that um is it semiotic analysis he's doing a um i can remember the chapter he he talks um more to- Jameson talks about all the representations uh, that are present in Moore's Utopia. So he's talking about Jewish kingship, uh, the Hebrew Bible, Protestantism in kind of one section. And then he talks about Greek influence and Greek culture, but also ideas of democracy in- as another. He talks about Incas um, and their influence, as well as, I think it's Persians. Am I correct in thinking that's like the, the fourth? Yeah, kind of an Oriental thing anyways. Yeah, so he, he's Jameson's kind of arguing that what you see all these kind of reps, representations working together in 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 Moore's Utopia. So Moore definitely has a really interesting relationship to the biblical texts, um, and how that works out in in real time and and the inspiration, which is it's fascinating to me. I think looking at the reception of the Bible in utopian studies um, as a genre, as a genre as a discipline and 
where utopian studies is now and its integration into biblical studies and its relationship with the bible and theology i find really fascinating and ryan i think you probably talk more about the theology side of it but in biblical studies utopia the the incorporation of utopia is fairly new um in in terms of probably 1996 onwards uh when so roland published in 1996 on utopia reading uh chronicles um through Utopia, using the work of Frederick Jameson with the political unconscious. He then continues that in 1997. And that's a kind of early writing. We get John J. Collins writing in 2000 on models of Utopia in biblical texts. Then we have 2005, this edited volume comes out. We get more from Roland Bohr among the years. We get Stephen Schweitzer come out with more on Chronicles and Utopia taking inspiration from Bohr. Then Every so often there's there's an odd text here and there, mainly focused on Chronicles, Ezra Nehemiah, One of the Prophets. Uhlenbrook publishes her stuff on Numbers 13, but it's really limited in terms, I think there's maybe, I would say between 10 and 15 studies that are interested in the idea of utopia and the Bible and what that means for reading the Bible. And I find that's really fascinating in itself because it feels like such a biblical idea. We're talking about more... As a, as a Catholic saint, um, Jameson's obviously identified the biblical elements in, 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 in the text. Um, but then also in, in utopian studies, the discipline, what you have is this real resistance, I think, to engage in the topic of, of religion um, hmm. or the Bible as a piece of, of literature. And I think my suspicion is is the kind of maybe Marxist heritage of utopian studies Um as it's as emerged now, um, thinking kind of key figures in, in utopian studies are people like Frederick Jameson, Darko Suvin. Um, so Suvin's a literary theorist writing on um, science fiction, but his definition of, of science fiction and cognitive estrangement is really picked up in utopian studies. Um, but very committed Marxists. Um, and I wondered the extent to which that is playing a part in this hesitance towards the Bible or religious texts. Um, but it's really interesting that's going on at the same time that theology has really taken to this idea of utopia. So I'm not going to take a theologian's job um, and definitely hand over to Ryan, but people like Ernst Bloch, um, tremendously influential. I'm interested in Bloch because he takes up the idea of Exodus as a kind of quintessential utopian text. But Bloch, Maltman, um Liberation theology has has really used it. Um, I'm trying to think of specific names, but I know that uh, Gutierrez's theology of liberation picks up the idea of utopia. And I just had to look at my pile of books behind my desk there. Um, but maybe I'll hand over to Ryan on the theology and stop waffling. Oh, uh, I want to be a very reliable guide because um, mostly my interest in it is just as like a as like a colonial text in the as the way like English colonialism is is uh, shaped in the 16th century. So I don't actually really know the theological trajectory of utopia. So let let me ask you this then um, first, Ryan. Then I'm sure Kat will also have some answers. Where does utopian studies go now? Like what we're on the kind of verge of 2022. What does utopian studies look like in the next five to ten years like 
you know, what voices are going to be heard, which directions do you think it would be healthy to go in? Um, I, I, I think... Mean... None. Well, Put it down. I think like the two places that have... Um, that have the most promise are there are like I'm vaguely aware in like indigenous literature that's being written right now of like utopia being used in that kind of like in fiction uh, and in literature. So I think like the production of that by historically marginalized communities is going to be like something useful to, to think with um particularly i'll be interested and this is something that i probably need to do more reading on but i'll be interested to see how um or if it kind of like really gets to the heart of some of the like the colonial entanglements of like the Mm -hmm. production of moore's text and how it plays with that in the production of of literature today or if what we're gonna see is just kind of like um like an indigenized reception of utopia as an ideal place that is useful for imagining um, possible alternative political projects, which is useful too, but it's just going to be a different kind of thing. And will be mm. kind of like, uh, you know, obviously kind of more beholden to a more recent kind of like Marxist heritage. So I'm just interested to see what's going to come with that. And I think that's probably one of going to be one of the more interesting places to watch utopia studies but i'm not i imagine there's already stuff out there that i'm just not aware of so uh but that would be where i would go look i think if i wanted to do more on this i mean you could definitely do a search on utopian studies the journal that's what i've done trying to track down any kind of trace of of the bible and religion um in and I think it's important to clarify that we're not utopian. We, we, I wouldn't identify as a utopian studies scholar, and I don't think Ryan probably not either, but interested in the topic of utopia for our own disciplines. And utopian studies does exist in itself as, as people that are deeply committed to the concept of utopia and studying that concept. Um, and I, I don't see myself as a, as a utopian studies scholar. I think that I have a, I think that the Bible has a lot to offer utopian studies and definitely should be picked up, um, particularly given that the kind of use of, of utopian ideas in the Bible in kind of broader utopian thought. Um, but so in, in terms of kind of where utopian studies would go, I think I'll speak to utopian studies and, and the Bible more than anything. I think there's really cool stuff happening in utopian studies as a discipline on climate change Um in the wake of climate disaster. So questions about climate justice. And I think this comes back to dystopia and, and the question we was, or the, the ideas we were talking about earlier. Um, how do dystopias deal with climate change? What do they look like? There's, I will plug this book, I think, for the rest of my life, but um, it's a fiction book actually um, by N.K. Jemison, who is a phenomenal um, sci-fi and fantasy writer but has a, a trilogy, a fancy young adult trilogy called The the Fifth Season. I think it's called The Broken Earth Trilogy. Um, so if you are interested in ideas of climate change and sci-fi and you are kind of dystopian, I would urge everyone to go read that. But 
I think engaging much more with ideas of climate justice and climate change um, is really fruitful. But I think actually the biblical texts have a lot to offer in, in that sense, because what we see is destruction of earth, of um, ideas of, of lands of plenty, the idea of the, the land of milk and honey where um, the land will be fertile. And if if not, if you don't follow the commandments, it, it won't be, it will be punished. And I think those, how, how we work towards a, a future of climate justice, the Bible has a lot to offer. And I think biblical studies and theolo- theologians have done a lot in terms of that, um, I know probably I mean, the eco-theolo- theologians have, but so there's like that's made me think of the idea of human responsibility for ecological change is a theme that crops up at various places in the Bible. Um, yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, there's there's a lot I think to say that the Bible can say to utopian studies and, and likewise, actually, when we're developing eco-theologies or thinking with the Bible about climate justice, what can we use from utopian studies? I think there's much more to be said in terms of a fruitful relationship, but I think also in terms of uh, the Christian West, maybe dealing with those issues of utopia and the idea of the promised land as a utopian text that, that is inherently colonial would also be fruitful, I think, mm. Um and maybe not discuss it. Maybe utopia is a, a nice way to deal with that because we understand utopia as a colonialist ideology itself. Um, so when we talk about the promised land as utopia, in in that we're saying that actually the promised land then is a colonial ideology, and we're, we're happier to talk about those. I have many thoughts on where where further thought should go, but I think in biblical studies, I'd be interested in more theoretical, like foundations of discussions of the theory. With utopia, in conversation with utopian studies, not just as biblical scholars who are mixing ideas of eschatology, are just using maybe one definition, but utopia has so much to offer. I just love it. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess end. that's it. Yeah, talking about, um, let's just using your example of biblical scholars and utopian theorists talking to one another, that sounds like the kind of definition of interdisciplinary or being interdisciplinary mm. or doing this kind of cross-field research. Um, is that something to strive for? How does that work? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Either of you want to jump in? I can see Ryan nodding, so I'm just going to hand over. I I think what Kat was describing, where, you know, biblical scholars are invested in the kind of the foundations of utopian theory and are like offering that over to utopian studies i think that's actually kind of the trick of being interdisciplinary like there's a there's a cheap way to be interdisciplinary um which you know we all have to do at sometimes because we can't deeply uh, embed ourselves in every discourse uh but sometimes we'll just pick up a lens and apply it and be like oh that's neat uh but sometimes when we do that like we're not at all kind of like up on contemporary discussions and sometimes we'll be using so like with with utopia as we've been talking about like some of the ways in which like it just gets thought of as like an ideal place and then like all of that complexity of the idea gets lost i think that that, that's one of the dangers of a certain kind of interdisciplinary use of utopia whereas like i think when we want to be like interdisciplinary and if we're talking about utopian studies like actually offering something back to the discourse of utopian studies itself is like Mm. part of the trick of being really kind of versed in in 
in an interdisciplinary kind of discussion. I, yeah, I, I fully agree. I think interdisciplinary interdisciplinarity is, is extremely hard. I think especially we're writing in the context of doing our PhDs, you have to put limitations on the questions you ask. You can't kind of conquer or reinvent a new discipline um, or the relationship in their thesis, I don't think. Um, but yeah, I think more fruit, much more fruitful conversations are to be had um, with utopians. There's really cool research going on. I would could won't wax lyrical um, about all the new new venues that are being opened up. But I think, I mean, I'll briefly talk about it because this is I, why not Molly's well, why not um, a researcher in in. Kansas in the US, Molly Zahn is actually working on the Temple Scroll, um, and Utopia. And I'm I'm really fascinated with I'm not a Dead Sea Scrolls scholar. <laughs> I feel like I'm I'm couching all the things that I'm not today. Um, <laughs> this is I think the thing you say most on the podcast is that you're not a Dead Sea yeah. Scrolls scholar. But I I'm think it really is but... <laughs> we need like an official podcast count for how many times Kat has said this. I think also how many times can Kat say interesting in one podcast episode and also how many times <laughs> can Kat say, oh, I'm not a Dead Sea Scrolls scholar, but I'll talk about mm. them anyway. Um, Go for it. Really interested in in her work on the Temple Scroll and also the the idea of temples in um, temples and utopia have been written about a little bit in the Hebrew Bible. So Ezekiel's temple in um Book of Ezekiel, but also... Solomon's temple especially in chronicles and the kind of utopian construction of the temple I'd be really fascinated what utopian architects make of that and the uh, the use of space by architecture and how they view utopia as a lens to to apply that so it's so moving beyond kind of maybe the standard definitions from literary theorists of Lyman Tau Sargent or Darko Suvin or Frederick Jameson actually how do you how do utopian architects deal with space and what do they think of it? And how do we apply that then to the, the kind of textual space that we have in, in the biblical text? I'd love, that's a question that I'd love to hear more. And, and yeah, there's so, there's so much exciting stuff there. And I think I've just talked everyone's ears off at the end of this, just being like, this is so cool. Um, mm. But it, there's so much to say and so many more venues and avenues to explore. Great. Um so last things I think we should open up just a little bit of room. Is there anything either of you want to plug at this point? What are you doing anything in the near future, publishing anything that listeners might find interesting or want to check out? Yeah. So I've got um, a forthcoming article with a good friend and colleague, Joe Henderson Merigold, where we touch on uh, utopian possibilities and drag uh, with the character of Mordecai in the book of Esther. Um, mm-hmm. which is really exciting um, I love Esther I've had a bit of a side hobby with with that so it's nice to bring my interest in, in Utopia and Esther together but that's mm. my little plug congratulations Ryan well I've been working on uh, a new podcast actually uh, it's Ooh. for the New Leaf Network uh, so and it's going to be called True North Theology and it's going to be featuring I guess Canadian political theology. Uh, mm-hmm. This was born out of a question that my supervisor posed to me one day when we were having a meeting and he said, Ryan, uh, your dissertation seems like what you're trying to do is a Canadian 
political theology. And I was like, yeah, I, I think I am. And then he's like, well, you should figure out what that means. <laughs> and so uh, my, in my quest to do that, I, I've met some new friends. And uh, anyways, uh, one thing led to another. And all of a sudden, I have like almost 10 episodes recorded. So that's going to launch in the new oh, year, wow. hopefully. Wow. Um, yeah. So I'm pretty excited with that uh, because oftentimes as a Canadian, we like uh, we get caught between the American and British academies a lot and uh, mm. forget that we have our own things to say. Um, and so, yeah, if any of your listeners are, are interested in something a little bit more niche, that that'll be going live on the probably the end of January, hopefully. Do you have a, a Twitter handle or an email or anything for that? Yeah, um, I think it's like at True North Theo. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Twitter is up and then the rest of it will come in the new year. Okay. True North podcast. Um, True North Theology. Check it out. Yeah. True North Theology. There we go. Um, very cool. Sounds amazing. Do I have anything to plug? Oh, what don't I have to plug? Um, you have any stuff coming out on the Witcher end or... Yes, I do. Um, I know that if anyone wants to read cat. that, let me know. Um, thinking about how the ghost is portrayed in terms of clothing and embodiment with my good friend Ellie Lowe. So uh, no hauntology there? No hauntology, but I think this is, uh, yeah, you got me thinking. Now I know a little bit more about hauntology. Maybe that's uh, the next project to think a bit more seriously with some of this theory. To wrap up... Um, the main interview, I will just say thank you to both of you for such an interesting conversation. I feel like I'm not only learning a lot, but I'm rethinking the things I thought I already knew, which is always a delight. So that's all from me. Thanks to our listeners. Thanks to both Ryan and Kat. We hope you've enjoyed this. Uh, we hope you're enjoying season two, as we should be a couple episodes in by now. And that's it. I've been Joe Scales, and we've been Ancient Afterlives. Thank you for listening to Ancient Afterlives. We hope you enjoyed this interview with Catherine Gwyther and Brian Turnbull.